Welcome to Offsides. I'm Matt Ufford. With me today is Matt Stover, former kicker for the Baltimore Ravens, All-Pro, Pro Bowler, Ravens Ring of Honor, Super Bowl champion. A few things like that. Welcome. Father, husband. You know, oh, you can say that too. I, I, uh, I didn't. I'm not. I'm not keen on those. <laughs> not yet, anyway. That's why I informed you. It's good. All right. Uh, now. Welcome, sir. Thank you for coming to our New York studios. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It's a good time. Um, I can't help but notice that you've got a giant shiny ring on your ring finger there. Amazingly. The, you know, the reason I wore it was to honor Steve Bushotti and the Baltimore Ravens for taking care of five guys who didn't even play in the game, weren't even on the team during the time, but they thought enough of us to Michael McCurry, myself, Jonathan Ogden, Jamal Lewis, and Peter Bulware. And we're all part of the ring of honor in our stadium. And because of that, he thought that the, the team was built on our shoulders, and he wanted to uh, give us the opportunity to have a ring and, and all the rings forward as well. Really? So, so, so yeah, that's, that's a great you can have a huge so, collection of, of, of Super Bowl rings without doing anything. Is that not great? I love it. So, really, I'm going to be really rooting for the Ravens these days. <laughs> that's great. That's I good. See. Uh, we'll get to, we'll get a close up of it later, but man, yeah, you, that's, you got the it's the largest one of mass ever built. So <laughs> there you have it. And and Bushadi wanted to do it right. It's white gold. It's got I don't know what the weight is of it, but it's a lot. So I've already got it on my insurance policy. It too. looks it looks hefty, and it's got your name on it too. Yeah, it's got my name on it, and underneath it it says Ring of Honor or R O H. So I don't have my number, but I'll take R O H. All right, all right, good stuff. Um, that's, I will try not to stare at it throughout the interview. I'll try not to break your glass. I'll make, I'll make <laughs> eye contact with you. <laughs> I'll keep it down. Uh, I appreciate you not wearing a low-cut shirt as well. <laughs> uh, we start things off usually talking about some uh, NFL headlines. Things are kind of dead right now. We're not going to talk about any backup quarterbacks for the New England Patriots. Yes. Uh, that's, that's out of the news I cycle. I thought for sure we were going to, but that's right. Because I did have Bill Belichick as my coach. Oh, really? that's right. Uh, and the intention behind it. But that's okay. We don't have to go there. Actually, I, I will be curious about that. We were going to talk about the Browns, too. Um, but uh, in the news today is uh, Super Bowl 48. We've got some, uh, some graphical previews of what's planned for fans in, uh, in the coming Super Bowl. Uh, it's going to be in New York. And they've planned something called Super Bowl Boulevard. Ten blocks of Broadway from 34th to 44th uh, is going to be made uh, into a winter wonderland for NFL fans. Uh, features a 58-foot-high toboggan run that can service 1,000 riders per hour. So thankf thankfully, I mean, Broadway is already someplace that is uh, wow. uh, packed with tourists. Yes. What we need is 1,000 toboggan riders every hour. Well, I, I knew that they were going to bring everything inside the city. There's no way they're going to do anything no. over there at the Meadowlands. No. Everything's got to be centralized here. And then I've done a Jets game where I was actually staying in the city and did the train. Re awesome. Have you ever done that yet? I've, I've done it, but I, that blows my mind that players would do it as well. I, well, I was doing a gig for the NFL. I wanted to go see the game with my daughter. I brought her up. for. She came up on the train later, and we went from the city in, uh, over there to the Meadowlands. It was phenomenally easy. It's pretty easy. easy. Yeah, You've got a, There's like a one little interchange in, a, in the first stop at New Jersey, and then you go up to the Meadowlands. They're going to have that down pat. They're going to make sure everybody can get out of the city and get over there to the game. Yeah, that's, oh, man. Um, what are your thoughts on on uh, on the game itself, on the Super Bowl being played not in a warm weather location, not in a dome? If you want to know what gives kickers gray hairs, is that. It's the weather conditions. Uh, the good thing about the field, though, it is, is it is synthetic. Now, are they going to keep it synthetic or are they not? That's what, if they change it to grass, then it's a whole nother bear. It is, gra it is synthetic turf, right? I believe so, yes. Yeah, it's field not turf. grass, right? So that being said, if it is synthetic, it's better for the kicker, better for the punter. you got firm footing. But it's when you have an outdoor game, like back in the 60s and 70s Super Bowls, 
and they used to play on the frozen grass, dirt, like I used to kick in Cleveland. That's when it becomes a real issue. But I do say as a, as a player, you have elements to deal with now, and that's another bear because you know here in January and February, it's no joke. It's windy. It's cold. You don't know what you're going to get. I pray that they have good weather for the fans, mm-hmm. but it you know you, you get whatever you want. So if you're one of those players who's p- possibly going to play in the Super Bowl, you're thinking as a kicker, oh, man, of course I get this draw. I don't get the dome <laughs> draw, right? It's, it's funny that, that I've talked to other kickers and punters, and, and that's a huge thing. Like, where do you want to play? Oh, I want to play in the NFC South. That, like, dome. <laughs> yeah, give me domes and warm weather. Right. Uh, and, but you've played, you played your, almost your entire career uh, outdoors. Yes, uh, 19 out of 20 years outdoors, and I say this because I'm proud of it, that nobody has more outdoor field goals made than I do, and uh, that was because I was playing in the AFC Central and also the AFC North, not one dome, and uh, because of that, uh, it was really difficult to, to go out there and make field goals, and you know, when you look at, at the at the environment of kickers, you still have to kick the ball straight. You still got to have to kick it far, and you got to kick it hard. But when you don't have to wake up on Sunday morning, when you look out of your hotel you know room and you see the flag is just almost straight up because it's so windy, uh, that you know it's just an added emotion that you don't have to have when you have to kick in a dome, and it just wears on you after a while. You were telling me uh, earlier that uh, your final season was with the Colts, and like it would just. Super easy. Being it was cheating in almost. <laughs> I, you know, I missed a couple field goals. Uh, both of them were indoors. But uh, being being that said, I, I do. I'll never forget Sean Landetta. If you remember Sean, I do. Sean, a New York Giant, great friend of mine. Reason I'm in the league is because of Sean. He basically said, "Never, ever, ever think that it's easier to kick in a dome because once you go in there mentally thinking, ah, it's easy." You're going to miss one every single time. And, and so you really have to focus. You can't think a two-foot putt's easy. you got to put it down the middle of the hole. How much of kicking is mental? Like, well, you know, Obviously, it, you have to be prepared physically to be able to do it, but, but can you miss a, a series of kicks and just kind of lose that, that edge? Called the freak-out zone when you're out there ready to kick a field goal and your heart rate feels like you've been in a near car wreck. You, sure. know, you know how that feels? Sure, <gasps> yeah. Like that, that's how you feel. Uh, it's the ability to have the confidence into that. Does it play a huge part in the mental game? Absolutely. It's 80% when you're out there in the game. Because can you calm yourself down to be able to execute the kick in, in a controlled manner? We're talking 1.3, 1.35 seconds that you're actually able to kick a football from snap hold to kick. Mm-hmm. That's not much time to, 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 to react. So as, as a place kicker, you have to know how to to create that confidence, and that all comes from preparation. And then when you step out on the field, there's no doubt you're going to make the kick. So it's just like automatic muscle memory sort of it's thing. It just goes. It's just pull the trigger. It, you don't really think. You take the deep breath and go. Nice. Let's let's back it up a little. Let's talk about you. Uh, I know you're from Dallas, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, you played your college years at Louisiana Tech. Yes, sir. Is that uh, I think the... <laughs> The Raging Cajuns? No, the that's Rebels? the Southwest. That's uh, Brandon Stokely School and uh, Brian Mitchell's. But I played Louisiana Tech as the Bulldogs. Okay, Terry that's right. Terry Bradshaw, Carl right. Malone, the Lady Tech basketball team, you know. Um, and kind of some lean years for, for the school while you were there. Uh, 86 or 89 were the years that we were going from Division One AA, Southland Conference. Into 1A. Into 1A. Yeah. We had to play a lot of big schools. Uh, we had to play Auburn and Alabama and Florida, Florida State. And we were getting killed. But we had to get the attendance up and we had to get the money in. Mm-hmm. And then we had to get the number of scholarships up, so we needed more money. So I had three head coaches in four years. Wow. It was tough and a lot of transition, but I tell you, it grew me up. And it gave me the opportunity because our teams were in such disarray, but field goal is a field goal. And I had a lot of opportunity, and the coaches depended on me. And, you know, one thing you have to realize as an as a athlete in, the, in, in college and in the pros, what you do affects others. 
Therefore, those coaches are affected by your performance. And so it, the better you perform, the more stable they are, and the longer you stay around because they're stable. So really what you're trying to do is keep the coaches happy so that you stay around a while. Huh. <laughs> That's how you make it 20 years. It's the circle of life. <laughs> um, your pro career, you were drafted by the Giants, but only played for them one year. One year, uh, drafted by uh, Bill Parcell, 1990, put on injury reserve for that year. Uh, Bill, like me, thought that I was a future kicker for him. Unfortunately, I was on injury reserve, couldn't come off of injury reserve after until after the fourth game. Okay. They bring in Matt Barr because Raul Allegre goes down with a groin pull. Oh, Raul Allegre. Raul from UT, University of Texas, good friend, good guy. Goes out with a groin pull, bring in Matt Barr week three. He kicks a game winner against the Arizona Cardinals. So if you know Bill Parcells, as superstitious as he is, he didn't change anything. He was he was a very uh, capricious with his kickers. He didn't it, like them. They just knew that they were a necessity. Yeah. And he didn't want to put a young guy like myself out there in it with a very, very good team, rightfully so. That's what impressed me about Justin Tucker this past year, rookie, and as well as he did and mm -hmm. the, under the situations that he did with the Baltimore Ravens and how he kicks the uh, game winner against the uh, New England Patriots, I, I mean, against the Denver Broncos. That, that tells me a lot about his character. But that year in New York taught me a lot. So with Bill Belichick left, he became the head coach at the, the Cleveland Browns. I went with him during a plan called Plan B Free Agency. Stayed there for five years, and I owe a lot to Bill Belichick. So that's why I mentioned him earlier. This is, this is interesting. What have you seen? Uh, like, what's different? Have, can you see differences in the way Belichick's doing things now with the Patriots versus back the, the first go-round with the Browns? Has we anything were, about him changed, or do you think he's, it's the same processes but, like, better players? No, I think it's absolutely he's changed. He's adapted to the league, to the player. Uh, at that age, we had legacy players, players who had no right to move from one team to the other. There was no free agency. In 1991, he he basically inherited a team that had been together since 1984. Mm -hmm. And Bernie Kosar and Mike Johnson and Clay Matthews and Ernest Biner, all these Webster guys. Slaughter. Webster Slaughter and Kevin Mack and a bunch of great guys. <laughs> Anybody watching this would be like, these people are so old. Yeah, it's true. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God, you're talking about these. Well, I played with Phil Sims and Lawrence Taylor. I did. <laughs> so uh, you, you go and look at what he was dealing with then, and he was breaking a culture. And it, he, you, you fire, you basically cut Bernie Kosar in 1993 in the midseason. That was death. But the next year we go to the playoffs with Vinny Testaverde. Mm -hmm. And then the next year we were set up pretty well to go again, and then Art Modell announces the move. Art says that Bill Belichick's going to be our head coach uh, moving forward, and then they end up firing him because we won one game after that. Oof. He had a lot to learn as a head coach. He learned it. By 1994, we had the team. Mm -hmm. And then in 1995, it got ripped out from underneath him. That was not his fault. So moving forward, he has, I think, has done an excellent job. And what he does a really good job of is putting very good people around him, teaching them. And when he teaches them his system in return, they become great individuals. As you see his legacy that he's left out there in the league. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about this move from, from Cleveland to Baltimore. What was that like? What kind of contact did you get much like? I, this is obviously before social media, so people can't just like be on Twitter and saying "screw you guys for leaving." But like, did you get much fan reaction? Uh, what was it like to to leave Cleveland for Baltimore? Well, it was very difficult, not only uh, for a city, and and I love my the Browns, and I, and and they know that I left a part of my heart back with them. Uh, they had just got through signing in August of 1995, prior to the training camp. 
uh, a bunch of us during that time to secure our contracts. Art knew that he was moving, basically. Mm -hmm. He wanted his team to go with him. And I was one of those guys that had just signed. I bought a house. I was ready to, you know, keep my family there. I just had my daughter, was pregnant with number two. And lo and behold, the, the Cleveland Browns get announced to move. Like, really? Are you kidding me? The Browns? <laughs> and when we did, it made it really difficult to finish out the season. The fan reaction was this. They were not mad at the players. They were furious at Art Modell and the decision he made. I understand both sides. I understand Art's situation. I also understood the uh, absolutely the city situation and, and, and their reaction. It really became a political play. It became the gateway issue, Gundarina and Science Center and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, all that together, mm -hmm. and Art got left out. And he had to get a stadium because he was borrowing money to pay Andre Risen. You remember that? <laughs> Five million dollars he had to borrow to pay him. Irony, Andre Risen now borrowing money. Yes, he is. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, but uh, <laughs> was that strange to later on in your career be playing for the Ravens against the, this Browns team? It was very difficult to say the least because you know you have a lot. There are some stupid fans out there too. This is over your trader. You know, like really, like I had a choice. <laughs> it's the same contract, right? Most of them said that no. You know, thanks for the years. You know, we don't blame you. We blame Art. You know that. Um, it was strange, uh, and it was. I was very happy to see this. That they ended up with a billionaire owner. They didn't win with him, mm -hmm. but they ended up with one. So financially, they could get healthy quickly. They built the stadium in the exact same spot. They kept it downtown. That that city had to have that stadium downtown. Sure, sure. Or it was going to be death to it. And then in regard to the way that uh, the when you were the Raven, they hated the Ravens. But now it's kind of like, no, the real rivalry isn't between Cleveland and Baltimore. Mm -hmm. It's between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Hey. That's the rivalry. Speaking of rivalries, the, uh, the Ravens and Steelers have a fantastic one. It's great because it's, you know, smash mouth football, you know, and, and we've always had that. With Ray leaving, we'll see how it goes. And Ed leaving, we'll see how it goes. But something tells me as good as those two teams are, yeah. those two coaches will have a smash mouth football and be good. Let me ask you this. We're, we're having, uh, I'm, I'm interviewing Heinz Warden in the very near future. Was he a dirty player? He was a competitive player. He did whatever it took to win. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. And sometimes that required to uh, do some things that integrity-wise um, or ethics, football ethics, cross the line a little bit. Because you don't take somebody's career away from them to make a play. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to be careful how you treat your fellow man. Uh, but at the same time, I respect a guy who's willing to, uh, you know, make the difference in a game and do what he's got to do. Now, I obviously – hostile crowd in Pittsburgh. I've talked to a lot of athletes, and they say they, they love going into that hostile environment. I love going in there and shutting the crowd up. But uh, would, would you say that's the same thing, or would you rather just have like a nice, quiet home crowd that's all nice and silent for your kick? In all reality, as a kicker, it's, it's difficult to kick at home based on the fact that it's very quiet. Therefore, if the team on the other side wants to heckle you, you're going to hear it. Okay. Nobody knows it, so... And nobody talks about it because kickers will always say, I don't hear them. Whatever. <laughs> In 20 years, I heard them. I heard my name. I heard them calling my sister and my mom and everybody names. I heard them. Who was a, who was a talker? Uh, anybody that had played on my team before. Oh, knew me, and they knew that I always wanted the guys to be very vocal on me during the course of practice. Because during, you know, practice became like, okay, practice, you know, kind of the Allen Iverson thing. Mm -hmm. Well, what I always wanted is my fellow teammate to get underneath my skin, see if he could rattle my cage. So, you know, I always had Terrell Suggs or Tony Saragusa or one of those guys just heckling me. 
And it was intentional, but if they could route, because I'm trying to get my heart rate up, I'm trying to get mm-hmm. myself, you know, really focused and geeked up to, and, and, uh, you know, basically be like a game. <laughs> so those guys would go to another team, and every single time I said I knew it was coming. So because I practiced it, it never rattled my cage. And mm-hmm. in fact, Bart Scott did it with the New York Jets when I was uh, playing. He's with a it. talker. And do you recall that when the Jets went to San Diego and beat San Diego? Or they went to uh, Cincinnati, San Diego, and then they played the Colts in 2009-10. That playoff, the first AFC championship that they played it with Rex. Okay. They were killing the kicker. They were playing on the road. Mm-hmm. And so the kicker could hear everything that they were saying. And they were killing it. Here comes Marcus Douglas just killing me. And there was a couple times that there was a, a, a space in time between a quarter that I had to walk all the way down to the other end. And there's Marcus Douglas, who used to be with the Baltimore Ravens, mm. killing me. And there's Bart Scott just killing me. So I walk away from him and I hit my three field goals. And they said, dang, Stover. I knew we couldn't try, but we had to try, you know. <laughs> but it was one of those things that that does make a difference. So playing at home, you can hear him playing away. It's so noisy you don't. I always enjoyed playing away because it was so noisy that you just you, you were totally deaf at the time you were kicking. Huh. This is yep. uh, this is always it, it runs counter cult, uh, uh, counter to what fans and even even announcers also yep. also say. We're like, oh, it's a hostile environment. The pressure's on. It does heighten the pressure. It does because they're all yelling at you to miss it. But at the same time, I knew how to channel that. And, and just go out there and react like we said earlier. Let me ask you a question. You were uh, the oldest player in Super Bowl history. Congratulations <laughs> on that. Yeah. I'm in a Guinness Book of World Records, Matt. That, that's, <laughs> I was hilarious when my kids showed me that. But uh, Jason Hansen kicking well at 42 yep. uh, with the, uh, the... Detroit Lions, yep. All the kickoffs now are ending in touchbacks. Could you still play? You look pretty fit. Well, you know, I was asked about that a couple years ago, and really what happens is, yes, physically I believe I could kick at a high level. Kickoffs, no. Kickoffs are a whole nother world out there. Even if it's from the 35, these young guys, I'm 180 pounds. These young guys, most of them are 200, 205. Weight brings strength and return. Those things are blasted out of the back of the end zone, and that's what coaches want. I always had, the last six, eight years, I had a kickoff guy. We would always split, and that's keeping a roster spot just for a kickoff guy. It makes an older guy vulnerable. Plus, injuries are more prevalent with an older guy because his body doesn't recover. It's a long season, Mm -hmm. and eventually it breaks down. That's what was happening with Jason. And also the mental wear and tear. I don't mind to tell you, all you do is kick a football. Okay, you go out there and kick a football every Sunday. And, you know, you have to prepare for the game winner every single Sunday. Over time, that just... Eventually, it says, I'm done. So in 2009, when I ended up with the Indianapolis Colts, my goal was to get that team to the Super Bowl, to be mm-hmm. a part of that. I did that. We lost against the Saints, but I ended it with, uh, you know, we beat the Ravens twice. Sorry about that, fellas. <laughs> but, you know, and, and my goal was to finish on a high note, to be able to help a team get, and it wasn't about the money at the time. It was mm-hmm. about helping the team, and can I be that guy? I was. I think it's uh, it's funny that you bring up the uh, the mental wear and tear of doing it because, Everybody likes having easy days, and, and, and I think the, the thing you're supposed to say as an athlete, I'm a, I'm a competitor, I want to kick that, that game-winning field goal every week, it's got to be nice when the, your team just blows them out and you're like, don't got to make any field goals today. And you only say that after the fact because <laughs> it's true. It's like, oh, that was easy, and that was no big deal. Thank you. You know, you have five field goals, and it was like all 30-yard field goals. Mm-hmm. Like, great. But with regard to uh, mentally approaching the game, if you went in there like that and all of a sudden you got a game winner, 
you're going to have brown streaks come down your leg. I mean, <laughs> flat out, you will. It will be tough. And uh, it, it, it is something that uh, I, I did thrive on, mm-hmm. is the mental toughness. And, and you have to be as a kicker. You have to be as an NFL player. And uh, that was waning a lot at the end of my career. When I walked off the field after a loss in a Super Bowl, and my heart and my emotions were what they were, I knew it was time. It's time. Now that you're in retirement, what's going on now? Well, thanks for that. Uh, you know, I'm running the Players Philanthropy Fund, and that's where we really want to talk a little bit about today. Uh, it's a donor-advised fund, Matt. Do you know anything about donor-advised funds? I don't know anything about money whatsoever. I'll educate you as if you're an athlete. I'm paid in Bitcoin. Yeah, you know, and the, some of these athletes are too, believe it or not. <laughs> but uh, some of them are paid a lot of money, and some of them want to be very philanthropic with their efforts and with their funds and their platform that they've been given. The mm-hmm. NFL gives you that. The brand is huge, right? Yeah. So a lot of the guys within their communities want to start a foundation. Uh, the foundation can assist anything from uh, school kids, scholarships, books, clothes, whatever it is. Well, when they create their own, they don't realize that there is a financial and legal responsibility you then hold when you have your own found private foundation. So what I did is I started a donor-advised fund. It's a public charity. There are several of them out there but none of them that are specifically guided and directed for a pro athlete. Okay. So what we did is we created a donor-advised fund. So no longer if you're a place kicker and you want to start a foundation, do you have to legally set up a foundation? Well, that's nice. You can use my platform called the Players Philanthropy Fund underneath your name or whatever name you want to have it named. It can be the, you know, offsides you know foundation right it would it would be the uh it would be like the the corgi puppy foundation probably exactly and and with that being said you name it that and then you just either put your own money in which you get an immediate tax deduction which is just like giving it to another charity sure or you go out and raise funds something you need to think about here with the sb nation i mean (laughs) because it's that easy and so what 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 happens then is once those monies that are in players philanthropy fund which we partner with pnc bank PNC invests them. And then what we do as a foundation is we manage those monies for you and make sure that any time that the donor advises us to send a check to whom wherever you want it to send it, it just needs to be a legal 501c3, a registered charity, okay. then we'll send it for you. And it makes it real simple for the athlete. They don't have the legal responsibilities, tax returns, the exposure to their brand, because a lot of them don't manage it well, Matt. I feel, I've definitely seen, like, every... It happens... Probably every other year, you you see this high-profile athlete where it, it hits the news of like, hey, all the money that went into this charity just uh, charity just got squirreled away and was used by 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 relatives and and friends. Or or they have a, a big uh, tournament golf tournament. They raise a hundred thousand dollars, but it cost them eighty five. Yeah, it's like that was a glorified party for fifteen grand. Mm-hmm. Uh, why not just give your own money? Yeah. Uh, so what we try to do, Matt, not to take too much time, but we partner with the athlete as well. That's what our donor advice fund does differently than anybody else. We'll help them pay expenses if they have them, if they want to have an event, but we also give them best practices. We make sure that they understand that this is what you need to do with regard to your fundraiser, your charity. And then also what we'll do is it from a tax structure, we'll we'll go, we'll get in with them and we'll share with them, guys, this is what you need to do with your contract. This is how you need to work out the money. If you don't, the IRS is going to get it. Uh, and we partner with them and give, get them involved in their communities as well. You are doing nothing to dispel the stereotype of kickers as nerds, by the way. <laughs> well, I always looked at the kickers as the normal guy. I'm not 300, <laughs> six foot eight, 300 pounds. I mean, really. Hey, Poindexter, manage my I'm money. I'm like you, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, 
I, let's finish the show uh, with uh, some some lighter stuff. I spend a lot of time on the internet. Mm -hmm. I've been around a lot. I like to call this uh, great moments in Wikipedia. Oh, this is from your own page. Oh, boy. In 2000, the Ravens failed to score an offensive touchdown in five straight games in which Stover, who was selected as a pro bowler, scored all the team's points. 49 consecutive points. That was, and that Ravens team won the Super Bowl. Yes, we did. We were two and five out of those games, and we won two of them just by field goals. Yeah. So my question for you is, what was it like carrying the weight for Trent Dilfer? <laughs> you know, here's the deal about Trent. Tony Banks was trying to make too many plays, mm -hmm. and he was killing us with mistakes. Trent came in to manage the game, not make mistakes, just keep us in positive field, field position so that the defense can stuff them, and then we just edged into them and kick a field goal. Don't lose the three points is what he was told. Make sure you get three. So he was very conservative in that. That And so Trent and I had a really good relationship. <laughs> so I got you back, Trent. Got you back every Sunday. I I'll said, get I got you, you to back. the 20. Yeah. <laughs> give me, and give me as close as you can, man. And then go down on the knee if you have to. And there were times that we actually played for the field goal because we didn't want to get risky and throw a pick or something like that. So it did happen. That should go on uh, on, on Dilfer's tombstone. Better than Tony Banks. <laughs> uh, yes. And, and not that Tony Banks was bad, but we needed somebody to manage the game sure. and to play to our strength, which is our defense. Uh, you finished your career with Peyton Manning under center. Pretty good quarterback, to say the least. Manning and Dilfer each won one Super Bowl. Who would you say is a better quarterback? Oh, Manning, but <laughs> but I tell you what, is Trent not doing a great job on ESPN? He's he is he is tolerable. I, I'm I'm very critical of a lot of on-air personalities, pr yeah. probably because I'm terrible myself. <laughs> but um, but you're Dilfer, good, Matt. <laughs> shocks. Yeah. Talk to him if you haven't before you pass judgment, and you'll like him even more. He seems he seems uh, sane, which is a huge step up from Merrill Hodge. Yeah, I I, I like Trent. A He's a good man, good father, good husband. Oh, yeah. well, um, we're gonna go. Uh, we've got something called the troll bag. We got to finish this up, but uh, we've got a question from uh, Scott Jurowitz. I should I should know these these questions were sourced on the internet, and so when people don't have to actually face you, they can ask a little bit uh, tougher oh, yeah. questions. Right. Uh, Scott said, "How happy were you when you were told you were finally getting out of Cleveland and heading to Baltimore?" <laughs> Happy, uh, not at all, but based on the fact that we just bought a house. We had my kids. We were really settled. Understanding, though, that Baltimore was a, an easier place to kick uh, and not having to stay in Cleveland for the next 13 years made it a lot easier and better for my career. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this other question is from Spencer Hall, our uh, uh, managing editor of SB Nation. And he's, he's a college football guy. Mm -hmm. He says... How did you not get a chance to kick one field goal in a 60 to nothing loss to Houston on uh, September 10th, 1988? I did have a chance, but we had a bad snap that rolled back there to Conroy Hines and didn't get it off. And I got You have a fantastic memory. And I got blessed out that game because I picked up my block tee at the time. Remember those little black tees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I threw it. And my head coach, Joe Raymond Peace, grabbed me by the face mask. Says, you better get control of yourself. Because he was mad. You need to take it out on somebody. Sure, so why not sure. the kicker? So I remember that specifically that I had an opportunity right before halftime. We got beat by Klingler. And Jack Pardee's run-and-shoot run and offense killed us. It was an ugly day. His follow-up question was, because you kicked one in the 66-3 to loss to FSU on yeah. October 22nd of that same year. Yeah, that was uh, Deion Sanders' senior year. Wow. And I actually kicked a 53-yard field goal. It was the closest we got all day. <laughs> 
I actually had to punt because our punters were kept getting the football blocked. My coach said, can you get the ball off? I said, yeah, I can get it off, and I did. And I'm punting to Deion Sanders. <laughs> That's not fun. Yeah. Did you see that? Did you see the back of his jersey at any time that No, day? I didn't. In fact, I had him backing up one time. There you on go. Because I absolutely smoked one. And he looked at me like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so I had him all off balance. Uh, it should be noted that uh, Matt Stover still holds the NCAA record for most punts in a game with 16. 16, yeah, in a hurricane at NLU. Yeah. Tough tough times uh, for, for Louisiana Tech. They've, they've gotten better since then. Yeah, they have, and I'm proud of them. And uh, they've got uh, uh, Dykes as um, – Spike Dykes went to uh, Cal, and now they've got Lou Holtz's son. All right. Yeah, yeah. doing well. Um, and then finally, this is, this is the last thing we're going to talk about, uh, our fumbler segment. This is uh, We kind of look at uh, the, the funny things that are happening on the Internet. And uh, a big story uh, right now is Darnell Dockett's face mask. I don't know if you saw this. Uh, he's, oh, man. Yeah. He, it's, uh, it's not so much a face mask as it is a, uh, a shield over one's face, much like uh, Shredder from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, I don't know. When I look at something like that, it's like it's either a statement or there's a medical reason for it. Okay. Now, I don't know which one. He's trying to probably make a statement to get himself on SB Nation. Dockett is a, a lively a lively personality, very uh, engaging and funny on Twitter. Um, seems to be a, a very much a kind of in in that same vein of talkers that you've had on the Ravens. He's a uh, he he uh you got to be careful with it because in this day and age it comes down to trust in the NFL. There's still a lot of old-time coaches there that mm-hmm. they get it but they don't like it. Sure, Therefore, sure. they if you're continuing to perform, great. But as soon as you have a chink in your chain with a guy like that who's utilizing all the the social media and, and doing which I love, but at the same time it can be detrimental. He's got to be careful to manage himself real well. Um let me ask you this: As a kicker, you obviously had the fewer fewer bars on the old face mask. <laughs> did you ever did you, did you ever want like just just kind of like something beefier, just to just to kind of? Uh, well, what I used to do with my face mask, Matt, it was a wide receiver face mask, and they the wide receiver face mask would come here, and then there was two bars right there, right? Sure, sure. We would actually saw off the top bar because it would be in your visual line of the ball. Sure. So actually, you could stick your hand through it. So it was like. Why do you want to do that? And especially with a big nose, right? I got a two-finger <laughs> nose. And, and uh, you know, I, the thing about kickers, most of us were athletes before we were kickers. So sure. we were not football players, absolutely not. But uh, if you look at most of us, we'll stick our face in there when we have to. You break your nose, you break your nose, and you just get a bandage up and move on. But, uh, no, I never w- – the only time I wore a full face mask when I made four tackles in one day. Really? One game. And I wore it on Wednesday at the next practice to say, all right, fellas, I'm ready for practice now. <laughs> they didn't like that. They, they didn't think that was very funny, but I did. And it was great. <laughs> well, uh, we need to get you out of here. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Uh, Matt Stover in the Ravens' ring of honor. Um, also, it should be noted, the Players uh, Philanthropy, Philanthropy Fund mm-hmm. – did I get that right? The you P- did playersphilanthropyfund.org. Go okay. on there. Check us out. It's a great, great uh, platform to help players. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, and congratulations on your n- most recent Super Bowl. Is that crazy? Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. We'll see you next time.